enthusiasm. You guys ready to pray? Let me pray for you as you head out with these guys. Do we need one more teacher? Are we? We're good. Lord God, thank you for our children. Thank you for our infants that have just been born. Thank you all the way to our seniors in high school. Thank you for our care, our nurture over them. Thank you for these children who are leaving to hear of you in a different context. May they understand your scriptures and the gospel well. And we pray that you would bless them, teach them, help their parents to know how to disciple them. Thank you that you love them. We love them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, have a good time. I think they got four there. Very good. You want to get out your sermon outline? If I haven't met you yet, my name is Dave Dorst. I am the associate pastor here. I lead music, but I think I've done enough damage for one morning up there. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for continuing to sing. I used to bring a backup guitar, but I don't break strings anymore. Apparently I do. I've spoken before, I'm sure. I know that I've talked about my favorite Christian musician, Rich Mullins, a few times. And if you have not heard of him, not aware of his music but you appreciate thoughtful, poetic, godly lyrics uh, set to a variety of uh, acoustic instruments with increasingly complex and beautiful arrangements as his career went on, you should look up Rich Mullins. Uh, Unlike Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, some of the guys who the year after they died got a a biopic movie made about their lives, Uh, it's been about 17 years since Rich Mullins died uh, in early death, in his early 40s. Uh, But they've just released a movie about his life called Ragamuffin. It's playing in very select theaters. I haven't seen it yet, but I look forward to it. And I think uh, over Rich's life, I'm looking forward to seeing how they portray it and the stories that they pick out, because I've heard from other musicians or people that knew him some wonderful stories of his life. Uh, after he became a very successful songwriter, you've, I'm sure you've sung his song, Awesome God, Step by Step, Sing Your Praise to the Lord, uh, he would have been able to bring in six-figure uh, royalty checks or income, uh, but he chose to have all of the money from his royalties, everything that he earned, sent to his local church, and then he asked his local church, their board, to just pay him what the average working man's salary in America was at the time, which worked out to about $24,000 a year back in the early mid-90s. That's, that's sort of unheard of in the entertainment industry, probably even the Christian 
entertainment. Um, I, I heard a story of Rich touring with another artist who was opening up for him. And the artist couldn't figure out when, when she got on stage, her, her guitar was so out of tune. Um, I hadn't touched it, but... Um, <laughs> Finally, she went to Rich. I mean, he was the headliner. He'd arranged for all the help and said, why, why is my guitar never in tune? And, and Rich finally said, well, this, this kid that we brought along, he doesn't really know anything about music or guitars. I just thought it'd be great for him to get that experience and, and be around a lot of Christians. So just tune it when you can. Um, at the height of his career, Rich moved to a Native American reservation to teach music to the children. Um, one of my other favorite stories uh, was from very early in his career. Not many people knew him or knew what he looked like. He had been nominated, I think, for the Dove Awards. Those were kind of the Christian music Grammys. And all of anybody that was nominated and all these big shot music industry people were invited to this dinner. And somehow he got a hold of one of the servers' uh, uniforms. And so he stood behind the food and would just serve people as they went through. And, and some people that knew him recognized him and thought, ah, that's rich. He would, he would much rather serve than be honored. And I, I wonder where he got these ideas. Um, I wonder where he got the notion that loving people and identifying with the underprivileged was, was more important than having a perfect show or a perfect life or a, a fat bank account, that it was more important that he serve people than that he be given an award. Well, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Matthew, uh, we may find some answers as we see the ultimate servant calling for his followers to put off worldly ambition and climbing the ladder of success in exchange for a life that is committed to humility, service, and embracing hardships. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20, 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said, to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. 
And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, give us insight to these challenging words. Help us to understand what Jesus was saying to his disciples at the time, but how it moves forth through history and guides all believers to follow him and to act in a Christ-like way, preparing for suffering, dying to ourselves, and serving others. Give us insight, open our hearts and minds to receive this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at the first section, it kind of neatly breaks into three sections, this passage. Uh, The first three verses, remember, this is the third time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has told the twelve about his upcoming death. Back in chapter 16, then in chapter 17. And I don't know how he can get more specific. He's he's getting more and more specific about what's going to happen as he goes. And so this time, the details of, In Jerusalem, I will be delivered to the Jews and condemned by them. Then I will be abused and crucified by the Gentiles but I will be raised from the dead on the third day. Jesus has set his course to Jerusalem, knowing full well that betrayal, pain, abuse await him there. And he's already shown in his rebuke of Peter, remember back in chapter 16, that he is not going to let anyone take him off the course that his father has set him on. Uh, Jesus knows that these things are necessary for him to undergo so that his mission to rescue and redeem sinners can be completed. But he needs to let the disciples know. You know he, gives, he gives them the game plan because he knows it's going to look an awful lot like failure to them. So he's letting them see, this is what's going to happen. Expect it. And he wants them to eventually not only understand that he is heading for suffering and death, but they'll have to prepare for their own hard roads and their own suffering. They don't know it yet, but the disciples will suffer and die also. Verses 20 to 23 Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, 
What do you want? She said to them, to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. For it is for those to whom, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, Jesus has just gotten done sort of huddling with the twelve, right? Telling them he's headed to death, warning them that there are scary times ahead. And, and I would think that someone would, would sort of start asking some questions at that point, some, some clarification here. Um, what are they going to charge you with? When you get there, Jesus, um, do you think they're like, going to arrest us as well? Um, how's that whole raising on the third day going to work? And, and maybe they ask those. Matthew doesn't record it. But instead, here comes mom, the mother of James and John, who has just got terrible timing. Not at all sensing the somber mood, I think, of what Jesus has said. And she says, essentially, hey, Jesus, I I heard that you had said something a little while back about how your 12 apostles are going to be rewarded with thrones in the new world. Because that's what Jesus had told them back in chapter 19, verse 28. While you're at it, you think you can give my two boys the best seats in the house? I won't tell you who to put where, just as long as they're up there, right and left, front and center, as long as everybody sees how important they are, right? I'm sure you've met this mom in your life, haven't you? This parent, the parent who bugs the coach to have their kid start on the soccer or baseball team even though they didn't earn it. The parent that bugs the teacher to raise Johnny's grade. Uh, the, the helicopter parent, I think we would call it, who's around to make sure that their kid gets preferential treatment so that everyone acknowledges their greatness, their specialness. And certainly there are times in life when you need to stick up for your kids. I recognize that. But there are other times where they didn't earn something and they need to learn a good, tough lesson and not be bailed out by mom and dad. Um, but here, here, James and John are grown men. How humiliating, embarrassing is that? They don't seem to be embarrassed, but to have mom essentially come and ask the boss for a promotion. I think that would embarrass most of us in our workplaces. But you know what? As, as tacky, maybe, and as poorly timed as this mother's request is, we're going to give her some points here. Because at least she's asking a question in faith. She believes in Jesus. She takes him at his word that he will someday be sitting on a throne and have the power to reward his followers. I mean, at least she's not 
asking something to the effect of, let me see, after you die, and this, thing, this whole thing falls apart and dies out, and it's a waste of time, who's going to watch after my kids? Right? Who's going to protect them when the Romans come to get them? It may not be the right question she asks, but at least it's a question coming from a heart that believes Jesus is who he says he is. And so Jesus answers. And I, I think he, he turns to address James and John, who have kind of followed mom. And he says that while they believe that Jesus will have the power to reward them, they have misunderstood the path to glory. Before I, before I talk about, we're going to talk about what drinking my cup, drinking the cup of the Lord, what that means. Before I do that, I want to do a little side note. Um, just something that was bugging me as I, I read through the passage. Because I think it would be easy to read this passage and think, you know what? The problem here was that the disciples were too focused on heaven and their rewards there to be any good to Jesus. And so I should never think about heaven or um, my rewards there. And I don't, want you to, I don't want you to take that away. I believe that the scriptures tell us Paul says, set your minds on the things above. Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. It is a good thing to be motivated by the things that please God and that will be rewarded in heaven. I think the trouble is when we think we're going to be the heroes in heaven. right? That's what they're saying here. God himself will be the hero, worshipped and adored. The three-person God will receive our total adoration. But God will reward you for your work, your sacrifice here on earth. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it motivates me when I think that you know, ministry is going too slow or, not, or things are frustrating in my life. I think I need to focus on what God says is important. And even if nobody else recognizes it, God is encouraged by his people uh, following him. So, side note, back. The cup here, Jesus says, that he is going to be drinking from a cup. Will they be able to? The cup here is an Old Testament image. And I've listed two passages there in your outline and uh, listened to what they means uh, Isaiah 51, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So you hear there, the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Drinking the cup of the Lord here is a symbol of having God's wrath 
taken out on you. And Jesus knows full well that he is going to be required to drink the cup of God's wrath when he dies on the cross and pays the penalty for his sin, for the sins of his people, not his. And he's essentially telling the disciples, if you want my glory, you've got to take my pain. And I don't think James and John know what he's asking them here because they immediately say, oh, of course, we'll drink your cup, whatever you're having, I'll drink that. I think they understand what's behind that image, what he's really asking of them. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right about that. You will be drinking from this cup of wrath, of, of suffering. But And maybe you should worry a lot more about that than you are worried about being given places of honor in my kingdom. The disciples will be drinking from a cup, the cup of suffering, pain, and death. Um, but what's interesting is that the first opportunity to share in Christ's suffering, are they ready for that? Nope. In the garden, when Jesus gets arrested, the disciples share in his suffering there, they flee, right? But after Jesus' death and resurrection and, and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, they, are, they find their courage, the Holy Spirit courage to suffer for their faith. James, according to Acts 12, too, was executed by Herod's sword. John lives to an old age, but is, is arrested, exiled to an island at the end of his life. And they know suffering. You know, Peter was the exact same way. He has that same bravado, I'll die for you, Lord. Right? He tells Jesus later in the Gospels, and and Jesus says, yeah, you will, but first you're going to deny me three times. Your first chance you get to suffer and die with me, you'll pass. And of course, that's what happens. But, But Peter, he gets his mission It's on track, and he ends up being crucified upside down for his faith. That's what church history tells us. And we're called to be ready to drink from the cup of suffering for Christ too. Not in the same way Jesus did, probably not the same way the disciples did, but we are called as well. The New Testament is packed with reminders that we need to prepare to suffer, to endure hardships for the Lord. The letters of Peter and Paul overflowing with reminders that suffering should be expected and will bring good things into our lives. Not that it's an easy thing. Remember, it was hard even for Jesus We're going to see that in the garden, Matthew 26, 39. Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see Jesus struggling. 
Because he knows he will be separated from the Father when he drinks that cup of wrath for a time. And it's hard for the disciples to drink from the cup of suffering because they want glory, not pain. And it's hard for us to drink the cup of suffering because we want to succeed without pain. We want the blessings of the Christian life without the bruises, the scabs, the scars. Now, don't despair. If you think back over your life and maybe times stick out to you when you've passed up opportunities to share your faith or, or step into something where you would be persecuted, I, maybe you've, re, you've rejected experiencing pain for him in favor of comfort and the esteem of others. We all have done it. I can think of a half dozen, dozen times that I've done it. But just like the disciples, they pass it up, but then they resolve. They repent of their passing it up. They resolve to follow Jesus in the future. Resolve, we can resolve to get out of our comfort zones, be willing to be laughed at, to feel the pain of rejection for being a believer. Because according to Jesus, we, you, me, we are called to suffer and die as well. Again, not in the same way. Let's look at verses 24 to 28. And when the ten, the other disciples, apostles, heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's been a lot of news just in the past month. I don't know if you, how much you keep up with uh, current events in, in ministries and the church, but I've, I've read a bunch of articles and stuff about famous pastors and ministry leaders. And the past, just in the past month, we've had a pastor whose house is a mansion, massive, worth $1.7 million. And, and it's sort of a scandal because the church just hides how much he gets paid and, and people are really upset. Um, there's at least one pastor, maybe more, who their churches use a manipulative practice to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars so that their books get on the bestseller list. Uh, there's just recently a couple high-profile leaders in family ministries who have had to step down from their ministries over sexual indiscretions. And I don't mention these to pile on the criticism and 
certainly have no delusions that I'm above temptations of money, pride, physical pleasure. And I think there's been a lot of repentance in those situations. And so, praise God. But it can be very difficult to reconcile Jesus' words to give up our lives, to serve others, to not seek greatness and wealth. When some of the most famous pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders are modeling the exact opposite. And that's not even mentioning prosperity pastors who I think would twist these sayings of Jesus into somehow showing you that God wants to bless you and, and uh, give you the favor of the king. But don't be disillusioned by those leaders and believers who ignore Jesus' call to humility and avoiding ambition. Jesus calls us to such a different standard of leadership than we see in any other place in the world. The rulers lord it over. The great ones exercise authority, but not in my church. We need servants. You don't become great in Jesus' eyes in the kingdom of heaven by shooting for greatness. You don't try to rack up awards and impress the most people and remind people that you're on top. Hire a publicist to spread your fame. You want to be great? Aim to be small, which is pretty much what we are. Nothing but a speck in the universe, a a tiny fraction of a dot on the timeline of history. Jesus says, seek the needs of others. Consider others better than yourself. Stop building your world around you to please yourself. And you've seen it. You know the irony of people who their whole goal is to please themselves and to always be happy and get their way. They may be happy occasionally, but we know those people are generally pretty miserable. The ultimate joy is found in looking outside of ourselves and serving others. We're called to die to our natural selves, our natural desires and goals. The great ones are the servants. The Greek word is diakonos. So really the deacons in the church are the greatest ones here. So hug your closest deacon, please. Deacon does mean servant, but that doesn't mean the rest of us outside of our four, soon to be five official deacons get off the hook, right? We're not excused from serving one another. If the one who deserves, one person who deserves to be honored and served more than anyone else in history has embraced the role of servants, of servanthood, I don't think it's too much to ask for us to do the same. Jesus 
incarnation, the beginning of his life, just leaving heaven to become a man was an act of servanthood. And then Jesus' whole life of obedience was an act of servanthood. And then his submitting to death was an act of servanthood. And if you call yourself a Christian, you are a little Christ. If you think that you're somehow exempt from following his example, from submitting to his lordship over your life and surrendering everything, you may not have thought deeply enough about your union with Christ. You might be treating your salvation as just a door prize for the end of your life if you hold on to the right beliefs. But salvation is so much deeper than that because in your salvation you are regenerated into a new creation one that is indwelt by the Spirit, directed towards the things of God, and bound with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself up for me. So Christ lives in me, in you, and empowers us in every area of our lives. Christ empowers us to love and serve our families, to put aside our own needs. This is what I want to do for the evening, but what do you need from me? What do you want to do? Sacrifice Many, many of you know the sacrifice to care for aging parents. Christ lives in me and I'm empowered to serve other Christians. Outside of my immediate family, watching other kids, going, serving in the nursery, bringing meals to those in need. Christ lives in me, I'm empowered to serve my Co-workers, is there a project I can help out with? How can I make you look good at work? Christ lives in me. I'm empowered to serve my neighbors. Can I mow your yard if, if you're not there or something's hindering from you? Can I, can I bring over a meal when you're having a family crisis? Christ lives in me. I'm empowered to serve my enemies, speak kindness to those who oppose us. As we're talking through the sermon, Dave said, you should find a a very concrete example to give. And I was looking for that, but I just, I was overwhelmed just thinking about our congregation and the many ways that you do serve So many people behind the scenes bringing meals. Uh, People, you should see all the people that get here at 8.30 just to set up the stage and the the, the, uh, classrooms and the nursery. People that visit the sick 
the bereaved, when it's not even, they haven't even been asked. Um, individuals that are serving in local ministries, local missions, and then those who support and participate in overseas mission. I don't want to start naming names because I'm going to miss so many, but you are involved. You host, you teach, you plan, you serve. Thank you. I want you to be encouraged. This is a challenging sermon, but I see so many areas where we have servants embracing Christ's call. And if you are not a believer, a Christian who's turned his life over, I wish I could offer you a, a Christianity that was easy, that was always fun, that made you the most popular person on your block, but I can't. But I think you know deep down that anything, anything in life that's worthwhile comes with work, sacrifice, and a bit of pain. And so it shouldn't surprise you that the most important thing in this life, being right with God, having eternal life, involves sacrifice and change. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it very succinctly, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not necessarily dying physically, immediately, but willingness to die. And willingness to die to ourselves. Willingness to suffer anything for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. Again, if you want Christ's glory, you've got to take His pain. But He took your pain first. The very last part of this passage Jesus says that he would give his life as a ransom for many. This is actually the first explicit passage in the entire New Testament that explains that Christ's death is a sacrificial atonement. Matthew's mentioned before that Jesus is going to die, but he hasn't really linked it or or said anything about being a substitute or a ransom. But Jesus here says his death on the cross will pay the ransom for many for sin. Jesus offered himself to deliver you from your sin, the consequences of spiritual death and hell. Jesus is not going to simply die to be an inspiring martyr. He's not going to just die to, to give us an example of self-serving love. No, his death actually achieves something. Taking the place of punishment for us. Paying the ransom for the price that was due for our sin. 1 Peter 1, parts of 18 and 19, sum it up. That you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus gave up everything. He was a servant in every way he could be. And you have the key 
the answer to eternal life and salvation because of it. And he calls you to respond in faith, to embrace his death as a ransom for your sin, and then to model your life after his servanthood. Let's take a few moments to pray and thank him for that and commit ourselves anew to what he's calling us to. Father God, thank you that we can read this scripture, put ourselves in the middle of it, because we're a lot like the disciples, and we're a lot like James and John's mother, who don't necessarily want to hear about the pain and the suffering and the death part. We want the glory. We want the benefits. But Father, remind us that we are called to all of it. We are called to model Christ and in modeling Him and in living out our faith, we will find pain, sacrifice. We will find those who will oppose us, who will attempt to silence us, who will ridicule us. Lord, prepare us for that. Help us to embrace it. Help us in our own small way to drink the cup. even though we are unwilling and it's a nat- against our natural bent just like it was for the disciples. And Lord, remind us as we strive to be noticed, to be recognized, to be honored in different areas of our lives, in our businesses, in our small circles, in athletics, academic world, whatever it is, Lord, We love to be recognized. We love to be great. But remind us, the way to be great is to serve, to be small. Remind us in this church not to push our way to be in charge, but to earn the right to lead by serving others. Lord, show us areas in our lives where we can easily step or with sacrifice, with hardship, step into areas of service and model Christ. Thank you for the ultimate act of servanthood of Jesus' death on the cross where he took on our sins and paid for them, gave us his perfect record so that we would be forgiven and given eternal life. May we rejoice in that. In the name of Jesus, amen.